Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sounds Familiar. My name is Caleb, and I am your host this evening. My name's Stephanie, and it's quite modern what I do, and it may feel a little strange at first, but I think if you're open, then you might enjoy it. <laughs> My name's Justin, and I'm going to be a great film star if the booze and sex don't get me first. <laughs> Great round tonight, gentlemen. Uh, so, uh, in case you didn't uh, pick up on the, our our intro quote there, all in, in German. Um, in it, it, German and French. Oh, yes. Um, well, in case you're not what's cultured. What's the difference? I, in, <laughs> in case you're not cultured, tonight we're talking about Cabaret and Moulin Rouge. Thoroughly modern, totally bohemian. They Yes. <laughs> they're both very bohemian. <laughs> Love that for us. <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah, tonight we are talking about ugh, freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Um, and Nazis. And uh, Yeah, the occasional Nazi, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> Am I right? I'm going to stop now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Ask all of Europe. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, but sorry to my mans. Um, yeah, so these are a couple of personal favorites, certainly. Um, and I For me think, and Stephanie, at least. Yes. Um, well, we'll get into personal experiences, of course. But um, yeah, and I, I feel not that controversial to say that Moulin Rouge seems heavily inspired by, by Cabaret. So. Absolutely. <laughs> like, even down to a lot of, like, the cinematography, um, they have that kind of uh, chaotic energy, I suppose, that is common to both of them and really captures the uh, the spirit of live performance, <laughs> which, as, as we all know, can be extremely chaotic. I miss theater so God, much, and these movies didn't too. help. <laughs> uh, I, I know, like, watching these, I was like, I remember what it's like to sing and dance on stage. I remember those times. <laughs> uh, so difficult. I, yeah, we. I guess we all here have experience with Mm-hmm. like stage performance and everything and it's so it's 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 something that like once you start doing it it's so hard to like stop doing it because it, it well not to like project onto everyone else but it's such an intoxicating feeling and watching these really captures kind of that spirit of it um of kind of that i don't know the synergy between performer and audience and, and just the the very um a live nature of live performance. Um, it made me really, really... I don't even know if nostalgic's the right word because nostalgic seems to imply that it's like a period of your life that's like over, which I, I, I hope that it is not. It's just, you know, that kind of thing has been very... It's just on hiatus. Yeah, very absent from back. our lives. Yeah, well, something. first every theater in our town was destroyed and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. So... Yeah. Well, yes. like It's been three years that we haven't had... Uh, we have we have only had one venue. Let's uh, let's clarify stuff. when we say that every theater in our town was destroyed. We don't mean by like 
the the conservative uh, uh, forces who footloose style didn't want us to to live our bohemian lives. We mean by a hurricane. Did I not like, say hurricane? I thought I did. Doesn't matter. A, a literal act of God, pretty much. God yeah. hates the theater. I've lived through too many of those. Yeah, I know. For, um, Enough of I, those for, for a lifetime. For once, it was God and not capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't actually work in tandem as much as some people think they do. Um, but yes, so... And honestly, I feel like, not to like project our own life experiences here too much, but kind of that feeling like that live performance is such an ephemeral and, I don't know, maybe, what's the word, like, it's so easy to keep it from happening or it's, uh, <laughs> because it, so much of it is dependent on the live part, it, these feel kind of like... <laughs> the thing is happening where I'm trying to like articulate something. I'm not sure how they seem to reflect that experience of like, it's something that you can lose very easily or something that mm-hmm. is so much at the whims of, of life. Of, yeah. Like there are so many things have to line up for that to right. happen one time, much less, you know, running an entire theater or being a performer for a living there exactly. are, it's it's a very flimsy structure like right. if, if one one pillar falls over the whole thing crumbles right know? and that's kind of what these movies like feel like they're about almost and not just about about you know performance art but also um just like the bohemian lifestyle that's so associated with that like <laughs> i i was talking with justin about this a little bit yesterday because i was kind of trying to collect my thoughts before we recorded so that i wouldn't stumble over my words oh well so much for that but um and was kind of talking about how after watching both of these movies i actually got a little bit sad and i was like oh i feel like these have a, a weirdly like four movies that are clearly made with an appreciation for this sort of life like, they also have a weirdly pessimistic undertone, both of them, that it's like... Right, it's unsustainable. Right, it's People like, can't live this you way. Can't live like, <laughs> well, it's it's more that, like, the, the lifestyle of perfect freedom and free love and creation of art and, like, uh, and upholding certain ideals is unsustainable in the kind of world that we live in. Right. Like, in the very beginning of Moulin Rouge... Christian's dad tells him, you're going to ruin your life. You're mm-hmm. going to fall in love with a can-can dancer and yep. end up wasting your life at the Moulin Rouge. And then guess what? He's proven right? Uh, I know. <laughs> what it's justice is that? I... I, don't, I don't much care for that. Yeah. It, it, but I think, I think it's important to note where a film's message seems to be coming from. Because to me, it doesn't seem to be coming from a place of cynicism so much. It's like not so much of like, oh, wow, his dad was actually right. It's more of a, his dad was right, but he shouldn't be. Like, right. the, the, you know, it's it's presented as very sad um, that, that this happens. Like, of course, in Moulin Rouge, it's more just the nebulous of forces of... I guess a combination of like rich people have more power than you, but also just death has more power than you, <laughs> which yeah. I mean is a pretty, you know, I, yeah, I mean, technically that is true. It's a confusing moral, like pick one. Right. <laughs> right? I'll, I'll get it. I'll get into that. I will definitely get into that. But. Since we're just delving into Moulin Rouge already, let's rewind a little yeah, bit and just do our experiences with cabaret yeah we're okay. gonna talk about cabaret first <laughs> yeah we usually go in chronological uh, his, order also it's pretty clear moulin rouge is influenced by cabaret yes. so um, so yeah. cabaret was released in the 70s what was it 72 72 sounds right. 72 sounds right so, so we're gonna go with that um if we're wrong don't correct us 
I, we don't care. Um, <laughs> how are you going to correct us anyway? I've never read a single review. I don't know if we have any. Um, oh, Cabaret. Which, by the way, review us on your favorite podcast. But only if it's nice. I'm just kidding. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find you. <laughs> no, no. So, my uh, experiences with Cabaret, um, I guess it's kind of fallen out of... Uh, Younger theater kids don't seem to know about it, so like I I, I didn't Clay know Tajik. about it in high school, um, and you know the the, the stage show and the movie are fairly different to my understanding. I've never actually even seen the stage show, so I can't I can't speak to all of that. But uh, the first time I watched Cabaret was about two years ago. It was like the last night it was on Netflix, and I was doing absolutely nothing. I was like. I don't know what this is about, but I'll watch it. Um, and I really liked it. And I told Stephanie she needed to watch it. And that's that's about it. <laughs> that's my experiences with Cabaret. Yeah, um, Caleb told me about it. And I already knew it was a thing, but um, I don't know. It always I always kind of only knew it as kind of like a boomer thing. Like, like boomer theater people, which... <laughs> I don't mean to sound derisive when I say that. I have great appreciation for, you know, the uh, the bohemians of yesteryear. Uh, it was more just like I wasn't sure, like, really what it was about or if I would connect with it. Actually, my first experience of, like, seeing it and kind of being interested was I, I in high school, I used to volunteer at a nursing home um, and, uh, the, or, you know, an assisted living facility. And I was looking at one of their DVD shelves and I saw Cabaret on there and I was like, is this the kind of thing that old people like to watch? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it looked kind of interesting. Like I've always, I remember like seeing like pictures from it. I was always really intrigued by like the crazy makeup and like the costumes and stuff. I was like, this seems kind of cool for an old movie, <laughs> but I never like watched it. Um, and I know, unfortunately next to nothing about the stage show except that ironically i with my burlesque troupe i've performed actually one of the songs from the stage show um it's not in the movie <laughs> that's disappointingly not the, in the movie the music is in it for like 30 seconds but it's used as right. the intro to a completely different song yeah huh. the song which don't tell mama which is such a fun song but I guess in the movie, we don't really know anything about her relationship with her mother. So right, they couldn't it squeeze really it in there. Yeah, but it is one of Sally's songs. And I, I had a great time like singing it um, with the show. But <laughs> I, I was very disappointed that it was not in the movie. But um, anyway, but yeah, that's really all I know about the stage show. I actually meant to look up the plot before we started recording to try to get a frame of reference. but I, I would imagine it's more or less the same plot, just with, I don't know, more... Staging. Well, I heard that it was very different. Is so. it? See, I don't know. Well, I already I said don't I don't know, so I'm not going to speak to it. I well, guess I should. When theater really. comes back, maybe I'll go see a production. Yeah, I would like to. I Where really would. Uh, uh, we lost the here, only location yeah. in town that tour uh, touring theater companies would come to. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Kaleidoscope's building itself back. Nice, maybe. Actually, we'll although you, you, you know, you live two hours away in a place that actually, yeah, has a, a marginally, a marginally a bigger city. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You guys come up. Yeah. I'd like to. So. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, I watched it and I really enjoyed it, actually. Like, uh, I, I embarrassingly haven't seen a lot of movies that were made before the 90s, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to rectify that, but um, I, I, I really did like it. And um, we, we'll get into some of, like, the weirdness with it, but um, just as a movie, I think it's very enjoyable, and um, I really like the aesthetic of it. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a fan. 
this was my first time watching the movie. Um, it's one of those things that is referenced in everything at one point or another. Um, it actually, uh, I've talked about Shit's Creek multiple times on here. It made that season of Shit's Creek uh, way more, <laughs> way more funny to me. And yeah, I, I look forward to you being able to watch that those couple episodes, mm-hmm. having actually seen the show. Yeah. Because um, when I, I, I just watched Shit's Creek for the first time, I finished it about a month ago, and they went to that season, they're putting on a production of Cabaret, I was like, oh, I, what is that? <laughs> I get this, yeah. I know what's happening. Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at <laughs> Yeah, <them>. exactly. <laughs> so the, the scene where they're rehearsing uh, money is so funny to me. Now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great little scene. They're, they're, they're rocking it. I want to see the whole number. Like, like I, <laughs> I really want to see the whole production that they put on. I know it's not feasible, but I really want to. Uh, <laughs> they just need an entire episode that's just the show and maybe the funny things that go on backstage or something. It'd be really cool if they had done, like... I know they only practice like those three numbers for the show, mm-hmm. but it would have been cool if they actually like did the whole thing and had like a limited run where people would be like, "Come see the stars of Shit's Creek," you know, in a production of Cabaret. Oh, right. oh, make so this happen, Dan Levy. You have all the power in the world right now. Make I this know. happen. Oh my god, that sounds great. Like but back to Justin. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, it, it's great. There, we'll talk about it later. As Stephanie said, there is some weirdness and it feels very disjointed a lot of the time. But it, it's just it. It's a fun watch. Um, and I, I'm glad I finally got around to it. It's one of those things that's been a huge gap in my, uh, film and musical knowledge for far too long. Yeah. All right. So, Cabaret. Cabaret is the story of Sally Bowles and an American who is, uh, a dancer at the Kit Kat Club in Berlin. And uh, I, it's about her and her relationship with Brian, I don't know his last name, um, who is an Englishman who came to Berlin to, I don't know, live a little bohemian for a while and make some money as an English tutor. Sounds like something I would love to do. Uh, all of this takes place in pre-war Berlin. Oh, yes. It's the like, what the year shadow is that? of... The Third Reich is the, quite heavy. What was it that Moira said? How did she call it? Oh, the, God. <laughs> oh, God. Something about, like, the, the, the angst of pre-war Berlin. <laughs> that. Very um, much a thing. I And I really like it. I think it adds a, a much-needed tension to Yeah, so it's the late movie. 30s, I think. Like, there's Hitler youth everywhere and people wearing armbands, etc., etc. Dude, cetera. That, one, that one scene, like, where all the fucking Hitler youth start singing, like, uh, uh, what a great scene. <laughs> it's very... Yeah, it's heavy. Right. Well, it's it's kind of delightfully unsettling because I think I don't know how deliberate this is. I'm sure at least somewhat. It's kind of contrasted to the kind of smoky nightclub um, deviant atmosphere of the uh, the Kit Kat Club. Uh, whereas here you have the very wholesome, like bright, sunlit, beautiful blonde people singing. Right. Like everyone's and, out at the park. Everyone's yeah, on a picnic, and, and then this blonde kid starts so... singing this nationalistic song oh, yeah. and everyone joins in with a few notable exceptions like there's that one shot of the old man who's mm. just clearly sitting by himself and very sad that uh, was a um, good shot yes and then as brian and um brian and sally's new friend uh fritz they go back into their car and brian was having a conversation had had it previously had a conversation with fritz about the nazis and fritz was like oh we can control them they're getting back in the car and you know brian oh, says, yeah he's like we just need to keep them, them long enough to get the get rid of the communists <laughs> right <laughs> like, and then yeah. brian's like 
still think yeah. you can control them. Mm, um, right. And, so, and it's great because especially that song is like called like Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which is yeah, a pretty yeah. on the nose, terrifying thing yeah. to be saying in this so situation. The, the, the presence of the Nazis is an undercurrent to the movie. And it's, you notice it a lot more on your second watch um, because the first time you watch it, it just kind of pops up two or three times and you're like, well, that's, that's weird. Mm-hmm. And like the, the very last shot of the movie. So the Kit Kat Club doesn't allow Nazis. Um, there's a scene early on where the bouncer kicks a Nazi out. And then several scenes later, mm. several Nazis beat him to death. Um, Did he actually die? I can only Is assume so. They I literally stomped on his face. Yeah. Um, and it's very... It wasn't really followed up on. It no, it wasn't. It just sure. happens, which is how most of the Nazi stuff is. It just happens and then isn't really addressed, right? Yeah. And then, you know, Brian starts fights with some Nazis handing out pamphlets and people are found dead <laughs> in the streets. That so and... funny. I hate to say it. He's like, I think you and your party are pure crap, sir. <laughs> <laughs> how very British. I know. And then they just um, kick the shit out of my man. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. Um, and... So and then the the very end of the, the last shot of the movie is panning over the cam or over that the crowd at the Kit Kat mm-hmm. Club, revealing that there are multiple Nazis sitting mm-hmm. in the crowd. Yeah, now. and there's more and more as it's going, yeah. which yeah. I I think is alluding to a passage of time. Ooh, and basically ooh. the entire crowd is Nazis at that ooh, point. Like that's fucking heavy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 this really strong undercurrent that I'm gonna say it's an undercurrent because it's. It's almost the theme, but I don't think it's quite present enough to be yeah. a theme. It just pops up every couple scenes to remind you that mm. that threat is looming mm-hmm. and that it's getting stronger. You know, if the movie has a solid theme, which I don't know how solid it always is, but I, I do think it's present. Like, if it has a theme, I think it's about the kind of the impossibility of living uh, the the quintessential bohemian lifestyle under these kind of circumstances because the the Nazi Nazism, whatever you want to call it, is kind of the extreme version of whatever the opposite of bohemianism is. It's kind of the extreme version of like nationalism and like moral rigidity and conservative traditionalism, like everything that is opposed mm-hmm. to that. And so it, it and <laughs> I'm hesitating to present this as evidence of that theme because Brian is definitely not a Nazi. Like, he explicitly hates them, as he should. But kind of the impossibility of Brian and um, Sally? Sally's mm-hmm. relationship kind of seems like a much softened down version of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, he wants to have a more traditional relationship mm-hmm. and she just can't do it. That's um, an interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and like I said, I hesitate to really strongly no, make that no, comparison because can... he's not emblematic of that. And I think the, the movie makes yeah, that no, clear. Yeah, those lines it. can still be drawn. It's still a soft comparison. It's about the impossibility um, of the bohemian lifestyle existing within this kind of world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you just made me thinking. Um, you made me thinking. Um, <laughs> that both in this and in The Sound of Music where, you know, you have um, Uncle Max who mm-hmm. is... Uh, trying to remain neutral, Mm. Um, I guess you could... uh, A theme of this movie and of The Sound of Music is the impossibility of continuing life as normal Mm. while this is happening. Like, you can try to ignore the Nazis. You can try to just keep doing your own thing. 
and just let them do what they do and you try and do what you're going to do. But guess what? It doesn't work because they want to control what you do. So like even you you want to just live and let live, but it's impossible. Which goes back to like what you said about the bouncer like tossing the Nazi guy out. Like that's 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 an example of trying to like, you know, trying to well, continue as normal without that influence. And yet, the influence comes back and, like... <laughs> right. You can't live and let you. live, and you can't resist. Yeah. Right. right? You can't ignore it, and you can't resist it. Basically, your only option, as presented in this movie, is uh, resist and die or leave. Um, yeah, yeah. That's why I, I think, uh, particularly in this movie... Um, the the Nazi stuff, especially with it being the last shot of the film, uh, I wish we knew more about what that specifically meant for the characters yeah. um, because we don't. Uh, Max goes to Argentina, Brian goes back home, and Sally stays at the Kit Kat Club, and then that's like that's it, yeah, the end of the story. And then we see uh, all of the Nazis at the end, where where in like the Sound of Music, um, the Nazi stuff had a whole like we know what that meant for that family. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it felt like abrupt when it happened but at least that carried through and we knew what that meant for those characters this is just kind of like ambiguous yeah, in a way kind that's of kind of cool yeah but i kind of also don't like it's weird i don't know how i feel this about it. this movie has, justin and i were discussing this yesterday so we can just i guess we can do it now um this movie has a problem with resolutions mm -hmm. and that to a modern audience it can be a little unsatisfying if you watch this movie with like the mindset of watching like a little indie movie is you know frequently little indie movies are just slice of life like these people live in their lives some stuff happens and then it just kind of ends and everyone goes their merry way there's not really like and then they learned their lesson and saved the universe you know and so <laughs> you have to watch cabaret with that mindset because it very much does just kind of trail off yeah. because it's trying to be life does not have satisfying bookends right like, even if you have, for the most of a movie, you've got a nice little tale, um, a nice story to tell. Real life, unfortunately, is not divided up into neat acts and, mm. you know, segues and stuff. And so you have to be aware of that going in because a lot of it is just stuff happens to these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Brian leaves. Well, it, it's I like, I, I'm okay um, with ambiguity. Uh, Starting that over again. <laughs> I'm okay with the ambiguity um, in my films and, like, ending, but it's just, like, it, it feels so intense because of what yeah. that ambiguous for it. It's like, oh, the invasion of the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. It, right, and I, I'll be honest, I do prefer a little more resolution, a little more climacticism. Um, I, I guess if I were to make an argument for it, it would be that it's very much supposed to be, like, presentation of a certain lifestyle, uh, a certain moment in time in which maybe the last moment in time in which this could truly exist. Um. Apollo is rolling around on the couch and being very cute. Yeah. <laughs> He's bored. He doesn't care about the bohemian lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, as a dog, he is, he, <laughs> He's already kind of living, living the most bohemian I mean, yeah. life of all of us. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's supposed to be almost kind of tragic in that these are people who are just trying to live their lives and get the most out of life um, and pursue that kind of elusive dream of like perfect freedom that really can't keep going. And so, and especially like like with the rise of 
the Third Reich. <laughs> there, there's not really a specific cutoff point. It, it doesn't all suddenly come crashing down. It happens slowly, and it keeps gaining a foothold. And by the end, it's just like, oh, this is just what has happened, and we di- we couldn't stop it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even know that we were able to stop it, you know. So, uh, I don't know. I I do think that it is a little meandering, but I, I think that the, that's not necessarily unjustified by the type of story that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a little meandering and, in addition, a, a bit disjointed. Mm-hmm. Um, the editing is a little... So, the cinematography is fantastic. Yes. The way the, the numbers are shot is great like as far as not having seen the show but as far as adapting a musical to a movie is concerned i think fantastic job um all of i think all of the musical numbers are diegetic um and they're just they happen on stage at the kit kat club we'll we'll something will happen in the story and then we'll cut back over to the kit kat club and we'll have a scene that is probably kind of pseudo-relevant. That was interesting because it was like, it wasn't non-diegetic like the musical numbers in Chicago, which we'll be talking about next week. It, they, they are diegetic, like they are actually happening in real life, yeah. but they are intercut with things that are happening at a different point in real life. Yeah. And of course, you know, thereby creating meaning by bringing the two together. Yeah. Um, the, the Kuleshov effect. Mm. Mm-hmm. We used a film term. That's how well you know done. we're legit. Well yeah. done, Jim. Thank you, Justin. I didn't even go to film school. <laughs> I didn't finish. <laughs> but and my major's the, in theater, so I don't know anything about film at all. That was a bit of a tangent to, to praise the cinematography when I was trying to talk yes. about the kind of janky editing. Um, scenes will end very abruptly, was, yeah, very awkwardly, kind of with just a hard cut. Mm-hmm. And there's a no, lot of hard cuts. There, there's yeah. not even a full beat. You know, usually when there's a cut like that in a movie, a character will say something, then there will be a beat for a reaction, and then cut. No, it does not wait. The line ends and then bam. Like one of my favorite lines in the movie, (laughs) Sally and Brian are going for a walk and Sally just out of nowhere says, have you ever had sex with a dwarf? And Brian goes, well, yes, but it wasn't a lasting relationship. And then boom, (laughs) cut. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty funny. So specifically something that stood out to me is it cuts to the host's face randomly so much throughout the movie. And to the point that I was telling Stephanie, I was like, I am not uh, unconvinced that the host isn't some, like, magical, puckish imp. <laughs> a chaos guy. He, he like, seems uh, to yeah. know more than he should. And I, yeah. think, I think that's intentional. He kind of seems, like, emblematic mm. of, like, that particular, mm. uh, of the bohemian lifestyle, mm. that, of that particular side He's, like, he's their patron god. Right, like, He's exactly. always staring uncomfortably at the camera and mm-hmm. smiling a creepy smile. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, Joel right, Grey did a great it's, job oh, in this role. What fantastic. a fun role. Yeah. Oh, I know. No, incredible. Yeah, and I think, I, I like that. And I haven't quite been able to put my finger on why it is like that. Um, I don't know. It, I don't know if you guys have any theories. Because obviously it's not presenting that as like a bad or a, a creepy thing maybe it's more just like um it's giving us that impression of knowing that something bad is going to happen yeah of like kind of an unsettling awareness maybe he he he, he is very unsettling i think mm-hmm. that's pro- yeah. that's probably the goal <laughs> Uh, and a lot of it is unsettling. Like, that was another thing I kind of liked about it was, like, the garishness of the costumes and the makeup. 
Um, obviously, in theater, that's kind of an expected thing anyways, because you have to make sure your features are, are popping to the audience. Um, but especially when they would do, like, they would dress up in the costumes. Like, um, I kind of liked how a lot of the numbers, I realized this on this watch, were kind of parodying that German nationalism that was so essential to the rise of the Third Reich. Um, like, for instance, <laughs> in the song about polyamory, um, they're all wearing these cutesy little, like, <laughs> very traditional German outfits. And so it's almost kind of satirizing that um, traditionalist, uh, that traditionalist idea of the Aryan nuclear family that is so essential to nazism they're like uh yes we're all wearing like cute little traditional german outfits but also <laughs> we're fucking around with some polyamory like what are you gonna do um so i don't know i thought that was kind of cool um and of course in the um <laughs> the one with the gorilla suit um that's a whole different <laughs> thing that's uh <laughs> an interesting number that I don't feel qualified to get into, so yeah, I would like to skip over that one. Right on just, I'm gonna give no, that. No, 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 one, no, 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 I, I, I want to rate that one a wolf because I don't know how to read it. No, I, I think I know how to read it. I, I think that it is to be read as maybe something that didn't age super well, but also wasn't trying to be anything but satire. You still think it's trying to satire the Nazi worldview? Oh, extremely, mm-hmm. yeah. You don't think it's just casual racism inflicted no. into society? I don't think it is intended that way. I think, of course, there's a conversation to be had about how clear one's satire is and how much it can actually end up be... <laughs> it can end up accidentally reinforcing some things if it's not clear enough. Yeah. But... To be fair, taken in context with the rest of the movie, and especially with the the subplot that it's intercut with, I think it's very intentional, mm-hmm. um, which is why I don't really have a problem with it. I think it's supposed to be... I don't know, I feel like it's almost subversive, because you notice like the audience starts laughing at the beginning, but it kind of becomes more and more like actually sincere as it goes on. Like, it's like, oh, haha, he's in love with this monstrous creature. But then the the words are so extremely heartfelt and sincere. Like, if you could only see her the way I do, like, and how much we love each other. And I, then it becomes kind of like, oh, shit, he has a point. I think it serves a dual purpose. I think on the one hand, yes, it's supposed to mirror the relationship of... Um, What's his fault? Fritz. It's Fritz and um, uh, Landauer. I don't remember her name. Her yes. first name. Yes. Um, Even um, though they are both Jewish, it turns out. Yes. Um, but he tries to hide his Jewish identity. And so on the one hand, yes, you're right. The language does feel like it's genuinely trying to get this point across and talking about uh, mirroring their subplot, um, their storyline. But I think it also, at the point, it, it occurs very, very late in the movie. Yeah. And I think... It's also trying to show a shift in perhaps the clientele or in the general public, um, showing that you know the, the the pretty much the whole of the German public is okay with this explicit racism now, yeah. right? It's just shifting mm-hmm. ideals because like at the beginning, you know, they were kicking out kicking Nazis out of the club, but it's not long after this scene that you know nazis are half the audience so i think it's it serves a dual purpose i think hmm. that it, it 
one, the lyrics are trying to t say that it doesn't matter. They're trying to be a little bit sincere, but also I think it's just showing shift the shift in the uh, cultural consciousness that like this is the kind of thing that the Kit Kat Club will do now. I didn't think of it that way because I, I guess I didn't think of it that way because it's not made clear in the specific diegetic musical number that it is an allegory. It seems to be presented pretty straightforwardly as like a comedic musical number. And so it's not like there aren't any, God forgive me, Jewish signifiers applied to the the creature. Um, and so it's not made clear that it is supposed to be an allegory. And so I don't know that it would read that way to a Nazi audience. Uh, it, it just seems to be more like, a straightforwardly funny thing within that moment, and yet we as the audience know that it is signifying something completely different. Yeah, and only because well, it's juxtaposition to what else right. is happening in the movie. The juxtaposition kind of makes Right, it. I mean, but then also at the very end, the whole punchline of this, there's a secondary punchline to the song. You're right, which I completely forgot. Mm -hmm. He literally, he, he's, he's dancing with a woman in a gorilla suit and talking about how yes. if you could see her through my eyes, and then the very last line of the song was you wouldn't think she was Jewish at all. Ooh, yeah, that line oh, really fucking I, hits. Yeah, I didn't even... I completely managed to block that out because I was so focused on the other stuff, and that line is such a come-from-behind like kind of thing. Like You aren't expecting them to outwardly say it. But honestly, I mean, now that we're getting into the debate, the fact that they like specifically say that, like specifically say Jewish, like that seems to me further evidence that it is meant to be... Uh, satire like that it's supposed to be oh like you you look at these people as this kind of monstrous thing but like i've just made you listen to an entire song about how i view i i view this person as like a, a person and someone that i love and care about and someone who m you should respect our relationship and then bringing that in at the end seems like yes remember we are talking about actual people here um reading into the politics of the host um might help clear it up a little bit because uh they they had a number where the end of it uh they did i can't remember the name of it the nazi march at the end of it and kind of it was abrupt and it seemed like they were making fun of it mm, yeah um so i, I, mean, I he think... was dressed as a woman they had a bunch of women wearing the helmets and they were yeah. goose-stepping we're obviously you. supposed to look ridiculous yeah um so i i think i think satire is the correct read on it he was trying to like get them to laugh at something and then have a message that like undercut them yeah i don't think the real question is so much whether it was satire so much as whether the satire has aged well <laughs> you know but i uh, i think i will argue that it has because i think that within this movie so much of what i love about it is that the 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 dark and the deviant and the the different the other is presented as good uh, whereas the, you know, bright, wholesome traditionalism is not good. <laughs> like, we know that now. Like, it, it's not as clear in the moment, except <laughs> unless, you know, you're one of the few people who recognize what's going on. But, it, like, so much about it is, like, the kind of the underbelly of society is actually, ironically, the most wholesome because they are most committed to the I the ideals of... Freedom, beauty, truth, and love, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas, like, the the people who are uh, presenting themselves as the most pure and the most 
use whatever signifiers you want to use, like family oriented or whatever, are actually like bad <laughs> and genocidal. Um, so in that way, I think that it does work. <laughs> Nazis are bad, actually. <laughs> um, Hot take from Sounds Familiar. Um, also, I just realized earlier I said Brian was getting into a car with Fritz. It was Max. The two are nearly indistinguishable. They look so similar. Can we talk about how similar those men look? Like, I can't. It was driving me crazy. Like, the first time I watched it, when um, Max. Max appeared first, I was like, is that Fritz with a different mustache or something? Or like, I, I, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. Um, yeah, let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, those subplots with those characters, what are, what's going, what's going on here? Um, well, in a mirror of the, uh, the thruple musical number, hey. um, uh, Brian, and, <laughs> Brian and Sally end up in a three person relationship with this Max, except they both kind of keep it secret from each other. I, I would have loved it's, to see that explored more personally. That did lead to a great scene where he's like. She says, screw Max. He says, screw Max. Max. She says, I do. And then there's like a beat. He's like, so do I. Plot twist. The scene where they're spending the weekend at like Max's country mansion Mm -hmm. um, and they're all really drunk and dancing was really, it's a really tense scene. I love that scene. Because up to that scene, you can tell that Brian's been, Brian's really jealous and suspicious Mm -hmm. of of um, Sally and Max because she's spending so much time with him. Max is spending so much money buying her stuff and she's doting all over him. Um, So when you get to that scene where they're all drunk and just kind of hanging out alone and Sally and Max are dancing, Brian's just kind of wandering around watching them. It's really tense because his face is indecipherable. You can't tell if he's angry and jealous or if he's just content and he's like, this is fine, this is a nice evening. And it's, mm. and then like he passes out unconscious on the couch, mm. and Sally and Max go off by themselves. It's just a really long, tense, it's quiet. The same scene. scene where he gets behind the plants and goes, "Look, King of the Jungle." Yes, <laughs> I'm like you, goofy fucker. I love you. <laughs> I know it's a fun. Yeah, like I like their scenes together because it's kind of an interesting combination of just like uh, dudes being friends or whatever, but then also. Uh, dark sexual undercurrents like <laughs> what is going on here um and i do think it was the 70s we can't fault them too much but it is kind of funny how they're just like oh surprise reveal like brian actually is sleeping with this guy but you see none of that all you see is like little moments of maybe some sexual tension but you don't get to see like any actual like relationship the way that like there is with sally but even that alone is probably was shocking enough for 70s audiences i'm sure like oh no they got too bohemian or something <laughs> like i don't know but but that yeah that's kind of a fun thing and then of course once max leaves and is taken out of the equation that it's just kind of brian and sally being like oof what do we do now <laughs> which was kind of fun i i, I definitely get that well, that's another thing that's not really, like, that's one of the threads that's not followed up on, is, like, when Max leaves a little bit through, about three quarters of the way through the movie, I would say, I was like, oh, he's definitely gonna come back. Nope. 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 He just <laughs> gone. gone. He pieced the fuck out. He went to Argentina, like, 
many a Nazi would after him. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting thread for sure. Though, yeah, like you said, it was kind of unclear, like, where it was going. Um, I mean, obviously, Max represents, like, the privileged elite because he has a shit ton of money and everything. Right, he can just up and go to a different country. Yeah, which I wish I could remember when the money musical number was was when that happened yeah Yeah, i don't remember what part of the movie that takes place i can't either i really do love that one though like (laughs) the just the music alone is really interesting i really like it um oh shit okay what else what else (laughs) there's so so much so much going on um i don't know unless you guys want to there's specific scenes you want to talk about i feel like i've Fairly thoroughly covered themes yeah. and ideas that this movie has. We've jumped around just like the movie does. <sighs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. We should probably move to Moulin Rouge now because God knows I probably gonna even have, have more to talk about with that. Uh, okay. Join us for the second half of our show now with less Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, thank God. All right. We'll see y'all after the break. Hey everyone! Thanks for checking out our show. Give us a follow on Twitter at SoundsFilmilliar and let us know any film pairings you would like us to cover. Did you also know that we have a sister show that covers cryptids, UFOs, and anything else strange and spooky? If that sounds like your thing, be sure to listen to I Hope You Exist on your favorite podcast service. We love you. Now back to the show. Back from the break, and here to talk about Moulin Rouge! Exclamation point. How do I how do I even talk about Moulin Rouge? This is probably my favorite standalone movie, like, ever. Uh, like, it's always difficult for me to pick a single favorite movie because I'm, like, obsessed with Lord of the Rings and, like, I'm a pr- pretty big fan of Star Wars, like, all that kind of thing. But as far as just, like, an individual, unattached, non-franchise movie, you know, the kind of thing that doesn't get made anymore unless it's by an indie studio with a few grand, um, that this would, this would probably be the one. So, you know, no pressure for me to, like, talk about it or anything. It's fine. What about you guys? <laughs> I also enjoy Moulin Rouge. Ah. <laughs> well said. Uh, well said, Caleb. <laughs> I love the hell out of this movie. I have seen it probably nine, ten times in my life. Uh, I, God, I love this movie. Yep. Let's just get into it. I fucking love just this movie. fucking obsessed. Yeah, it, like for a movie that I love so much, I actually didn't see it until I want to say college. I think I saw it my freshman year of college, and appropriately coinciding, you know, your freshman year of college, you discover a lot of things about yourself, about the world, uh, but appropriately I saw this then, and I was just like, like, mind cinematically explodes in a, a shower of light and color, um, <laughs> appropriate to a, a Baz Luhrmann film, um, and of course, un- unsurprisingly, this is what kicked off my, my Baz Luhrmann standum, um, it really is just like bringing in like all those stylistic elements that that we've talked about with like Romeo and Juliet and um probably being his best film I would I would say. I think Romeo and Juliet is close, but this one is just really hits it out the park. Um 
So, so yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan to put it lightly. <laughs> I, we stan. Oh, we stan. We stan. <laughs> Caleb, what's your what? experience? What's, what, what's your experience? With I, I, you said I should watch it at some point. Probably like Christmas break or something after your first semester of college, and I watched it and liked it and still like it. And that's makes sense. That's makes sense. my story with Moulin Rouge. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The um, gosh, I don't. Even, I don't even know where to start. It's it's where hard. Do you, where yeah. do you start? Yeah, I don't really know. It's hard for me to define in some ways why I love it so much. I think it's. It's more a combination of factors that I really love. Um, I really like the story. I really like the the stylism. I the cinematography. I like the songs. Honestly, most of these songs because I'm a millennial. I did not know before watching this movie. Um, it's not just because you're a millennial. Oh. <laughs> you also weren't allowed to listen to the radio. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. I, I... That probably has a bigger fact. <laughs> I mean, that plays into the whole thing. I, I, I grew up in a very, you know, without getting into it, a very uh, conservative Christian household, uh, which probably in some ways made this resonate even more with me or just makes these movies about uh, bohemianism resonate more. <laughs> Uh, because I grew up so absent from that, but it was always something that I always kind of, every time you would get a little glimpse of it, you'd be like, that, that, I want that. Like It's like a glittery line of right. coke that yeah. straight to your brain. <laughs> That's every Buzz Lerman movie. But yes. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, um, and, and this is so much about kind of that allure. Um, and I think it's part of why it resonated so strongly with me. Um, and I love the the maximalism of it. <laughs> I don't know how to define it as except as the opposite of minimalism. <laughs> <laughs> just like 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 every Bezlerman movie, like the overt stylism, just unabashed commitment to to you know the the melodrama of it all mm-hmm. um, is something I I cannot. I cannot overstate how much I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I was just listening to the musical explaining episode about Moulin Rouge, um, and they said something that I, I very much agree with: um, that this movie has a very specific thing that it's going for, and it knows exactly what it wants to be and what it's doing, and it does it well. Right. Yes. yes. It would have been very easy to attempt this. And do it very poorly and have this be a really bad movie that people get drunk and watch to make fun of. Um, but it knows what it wants to be and it executes that flawlessly. Yes. I, and I think there is possibly no greater achievement that a film can can have than, um, than tr- going for something. Like something with a capital S. Like going for it wholeheartedly and unabashedly and unironically for the most part. And actually achieving it, like actually convincing the audience to be like this wild, extreme, like crazy thing that you really believe this now and you really want to believe it. Like that (laughs) to me, that that's like the pinnacle of cinema. (laughs) It is like this movie is just it's wacky. It's loud. It's heartfelt. It's somber. It's sexy. And it does all of that very very well (laughs) it's kind of walking that line as i feel that a lot of buzz lerman's work does between just the utter wackiness and improbability of it all and yet it 
feels incredibly grounded in that it's like in the midst of the sound of the fury as it were it's like oh this is really just about you know love this is yeah. about the extreme basics of of the human existence and i think another part of the reason why it works is because it's also totally unashamed of what it is. Oh, yeah. It never, like, winks at the camera. Mm. There's never moments like, we know this is ridiculous. It's a, you're watching a musical. It, 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 it buys into its. Well, and that's itself. the funny thing about it, because it's clear that the movie knows it's wacky, but it's not, it's not apologizing to you for being wacky. Right, yeah. Yes. It's saying, like, don't you love how wacky this <laughs> is? Like, the, and that, to me, is right. so great. Didn't someone do a whole video essay about that's why Marvel movies work? Was it Patrick Willems? I don't know. I think he did a video about the difference between DC and Marvel movies, and the difference was that, like, mm. DC winks at it too much. Yeah. Mm. Whereas Marvel's just like, here's a scene with a ro- with a uh, genetically modified space raccoon talking to a <laughs> god of thunder, and they're having this really tender emotional heart-to-heart, and there's no winking <laughs> See, whatsoever. See, I, I, I think Marvel winks a little too much, but it, not I think, enough that it overshadows I that, think yes. their comedy doesn't land. Yeah. But it's not afraid to be sincere with a ridiculous that, premise. Yes, I, but I understand what you're you're saying i was just making a connection i don't have to continue talking about marvel (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll get there we'll get there but yes um i I do think that's so much of works what works about it like once again with so many movies what it comes down to for me is sincerity and that's not to say that every movie has to be sincere i think there is a place for not that um for winking but you have to know what you're doing with it it has to be deliberate and, you know, you don't always want it to feel mean-spirited, you know? Sometimes it kind of does, and it's like, oh, haha, you, the audience, thought this was going to be about freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Well, psych! Like, I, I don't know. The, you get that sense sometimes. Um, but I, I think parody is a great thing. And, you know, satire, winking at the audience, however you want to put it. But you have to be aware that you're doing it. And sometimes it's nice to not do it. Um, (laughs) which is this movie right like you said it knows it's wacky and it's not apologizing for it Mm -hmm. which i think is a great way to to put it yes and it's you know we use words like loud and colorful and wacky but it's also extremely tragic and sad and heartfelt and and romantic and just the fact that those things can exist together it feels very out of time sort of like it feels like classic sorry that was just the zombie in the background (laughs) aka mr apollo the dog who is very bored oh, our discussion looking at his languid languishing like, on the couch um, <laughs> more film discussion anyways it feels very operatic kind of how um in like older older forms of musical theater there would be kind of that weird marriage of of different theatrical elements like the tragic and the comic somehow coinciding together and yet not really canceling each other out like kind of that awareness of when to put in one and when to put in the other yeah um because this movie does it is very much both it it swings hard in both directions from tragedy to comedy often within the same scene yeah Yeah, um like the the like a virgin scene where um, was it like right. a virgin or was it a different one? No, there's... that happens. In, I mean, there's like a, a... What's happening to... Is something happening to Satine? There's a brief intercutting where like Satine is unconscious and the doctor is like... Right. She's um... uh, she's uh, struggling with her uh, tuberculosis while um, the Duke and uh, Zidler are chasing each other around a castle <laughs> singing like a virgin. 
um, a fantastic rendition of like a virgin. It's 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 tonal whiplash, but not tonal dissonance. There's an important yes. distinction there. Like it 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 jerks you hard from one to the other, but it commits so hard to those changes. Like everything, like the music, the cinematography, the pace changes. Um, to suddenly slow down and bring in, you know, the minor key and everything. And so that it feels like it is jarring, but it almost feels like the jarringness is purposeful in that it's like while while this crazy shenanigan stuff is happening, like this is what's really going on and right. you have to keep that in mind. Whereas like in Cabaret, the editing sometimes felt a little slapdash and you'd be like, what? What? Mm. Yeah. Why'd we cut? Whereas in Moulin Rouge... There are numerous scenes where shots will last for less than a second before we cut to the next one back to back to back to back to back. The editing is quite purposeful. it's intentional. It feels purposeful. Baz Luhrmann's editing is inseparable from this movie and its tone. Right. Um, Like frenetic, but not chaotic, if that makes sense. Yes. That's something we can all strive for, certainly. We're spending too much time together. Um, <laughs> one day here and I've mind melded with you both <laughs> Hive mind. Um Should we d- discuss a little bit what the plot of Moulin Rouge is? Yeah, yeah, let's do a little, okay. little rundown. It's pretty basic. So it's all about Mul- John Leguizamo as a man named Luce. No. <laughs> He's sort of our he's sort of our MC character, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, so is Hitler. Um, That's true. Also, kind of yeah. The... Moulin Rouge is the story of Christian Slater. A penny of <laughs> yeah. Uh, Christian McGregor, um, Ewan McGregor, Christian, yeah. Who moves to Paris and falls in love with the lead singer slash dancer of the nightclub, the Moulin Rouge, which is not in Berlin, but is in Paris. Mm. Um. <laughs> right, and it's set in the year 1900, so uh, the way it's depicted is very much... 1899. It literally says... I know, that's... The title what, card, And that's when he's doing the, let me tell you, it all started one year ago. Yes, okay, yes. It... <laughs> I know, it's a stupid thing. I just, I, I specifically noticed that detail sure. this time. Yes. Shut up, nerd. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, and it's it's presented as being kind of the end of an era, and yeah. and I think it, more than anything, like that's perhaps thematically what is going on here is when Satine dies. Spoilers. Um, that that is that is the death of whatever the, was going on. Yeah, here. the Moulin Rouge dies, and so there is nothing to financially support the Bohemian lifestyle, which it unfortunately needs very much like rent. Um, uh, yeah. Except, you know, screw those guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have more sympathy for the characters here than in Rent, unfortunately. Um, and, oh god. Oh god. It is, the, oh, I was going to mention the framing device. Mm. Okay, so okay, this yes. movie. Every Baz Luhrmann movie has a framing Every Baz Luhrmann movie has a framing device. Mm. This one, um, we open with Christian one year after the events of the story. Completely despondent. Um, so kind of setting the tone yes. right off the bat. Um, and he is in a room, locked up, um, looking ragged, but pretty good with a beard. Um, <laughs> Let's not sugarcoat here. He still looks banging. <laughs> and he I mean... starts writing a story on a typewriter that ends up being... So he narrates the entire story from his perspective in the future. 
Yes. Um, uh, which is interesting because um, there's a visual fl- framing device as well as a, as well as a narrative framing device because we the first thing you see when it opens is the, the uh, conductor and the curtains opening. Yes. And then that's the last thing you that's see That's another well. thing yeah. and it's that's said a lot about. Two framing devices. It's framing it through a certain medium. Mm-hmm. Like in Romeo and Juliet when it's like the TV mm-hmm. and then it is like the trailer. <laughs> um, and Great Gatsby has the whatever the hell it has <laughs> it's something and also the the in-universe medium of nick telling of the story. nick it does the same thing that yeah. this movie does yeah. with the guy it happened to a year later man baz lerman loves typewriters <laughs> <laughs> there's something very romantic about a typewriter just like a, i like, like the tick, 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 tick. Oh. oh and 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 the camera focusing in on the words as they are typed out mm. like the woman i love is D-E-A-D, like, (laughs) just slams in there like that. Which is something also I appreciate about the movie. As jarring as, in my opinion, it kind of does feel when Satine dies, it it does set it up very early on. Like, much like a Shakespeare play of old, uh, your Baz Luhrmann movie generally kind of gives you an idea of what is going to happen before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So if you remember that, it doesn't feel as jarring. You're right. Hmm. He likes to do that, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And no, knowing the ending of it doesn't yes. ruin. Yeah. No. Because dude, one, you usually forget about halfway through the movie. Yeah. What and the, then you're like, oh wait, the, this is the happening. exposition will literally tell you our two main characters are going to be dead by the time <laughs> this movie is over, uh, and you forget. And like before you forget, you're still like, how does it happen? Okay. Oh, 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 are they gonna live? How do we get from A to B? <laughs> Well, when they're uh, improvising the plot to Spectacular Spectacular to the Duke, they give you the entire plot of the movie right yep. there. <laughs> oh, so this that movie almost. has multiple framing devices because Christian is That's writing a loves book. loves a framing device. Christian is writing a book about this thing that happened to him. And in the past, what he had to do was write a musical to put on for <laughs> this guy. And the plot of that musical directly <laughs> reflects the plot of his life that yes. is of what is happening at that moment in time. The play within a play thing is very much a thing in these movies. My man loves Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> well, and it's... I was thinking about that a little bit more, uh, about the play as framing device. And the, the sad part about it is... The play ends on a triumphant note. Like, it ends with, um, <laughs> and their love is just too strong. Um, but that's not how the story ends. Yeah. Like, the story goes beyond the end of the play within a play because real life goes beyond what is what mm. is presented within a story. And in the end, should someone die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically our indication. Like, and no one really answers. They're just kind of like, uh... <laughs> the way they hop around in that number is so funny. Oh, I, love, I love the energy of that scene because it feels so much like that kind of community theater energy when everything's just kind of thrown together and you're just kind of trying to make it work like like they're just taking random cloths and random props from around the room and just like grabbing them throwing them on their heads like yeah and literally making up the story on the fly but i don't know i even love that like the fact that they're making it up on the fly it feels like such an archetypal story like even when you don't know what happens you kind of know what happens because that's what has to happen like you know, the courtesan can't fall in love with the evil Maharaja. She has to fall in love with the penniless guitar player because that's what upholds because the ideals of... Because freedom, beauty, truth, yeah. and love. 
Right. And that's why later on, when the Duke proposes the alternate ending, because he gets pissy, and everyone's just like, wait, no, that's not how the story can end. That's not how the story ends. Like, and, and that's kind of what's so sad about it, because, you know, the story does end differently, because it, it's real in a way that the play within a play cannot be real. I I do want to talk about the scene where the Duke uh, suggests the alternate ending because he knew, like, kind of knew something was going on, but he was fine until one of the other diamond dogs pushes him over the edge for no reason. Can we talk about that? that? I don't understand that <laughs> plot point at all. Like, we aren't shown, like, it, they could have done the bare minimum of being like, oh, maybe she's jealous of Satine and, like, wants to have her position. Right, it required a single short scene of setup mm-hmm. for you to, but it doesn't have that, and so right, your response is, who's this bitch? That was her problem. I just don't feel like there's appropriate justification for why she would throw them under the bus in that way, because... She's it, just messy. <laughs> she loves the drama. Honestly, that is probably true. Like, it, it, I don't... <laughs> the only setup to that is when she makes kind of like a, a a distasteful joke about how like when Satine passes out, she's like, oh, I guess the Duke won't be, be getting his money's worth tonight. And one of the answers is like, don't be unkind. Like, and but it, you don't really get why that's happening. <laughs> Maybe Buzz Lerman was like, you know how theater bitches be always throwing <laughs> each other under the bus, which is true. <laughs> but <laughs> he was working out something there. Yeah. <laughs> Loyal in, no, what's in her, um, community. Oh, what's her name? Her character has a ridiculous name too. Um, oh, I know you're right, but my I don't phone's out of reach. Let's find it up for a second because not only is she this unlikable character, but like her name is also <laughs> like a horrible like schoolyard nickname. Oh gosh, yeah, I, I I I'll have to look it up so you guys keep talking. I don't really understand that plot point at all. Oh. N- the, this girl. Nini Legs in the Air. That's yeah, what it is. Right. Like, what a name. That is her like name in the credits. Oh. It's what not just like name. dancer number two. Like That's a name. Which is weirdly slut-shamey when the entire movie is about can-can dancers and courtesans. I mean, like we're all in this boat that's together. That's like, look, we might all <laughs> technically be, be courtesans, mm. but... That girl, like she, she is too much of one. Like, like, I don't. It's yeah. It's really random. I okay. We might as well get into the way that like side characters are weirdly used in this movie. Because we can we talk about the black guy who randomly appears as as Satine's guardian angel and then disappears and is given literally not a single line in the entire movie. This one baffles me every time because I keep trying to figure out why th- this choice was made. You know, you, like, you told me the other day that he should obviously have been, like, her love interest because every time something bad happens to her, he's there to save her. Right. It, and they also pointed that out on Musical Explaining. I'm pretty sure what's um, yeah, yeah, Lindsay's did, friend specifically said that. <laughs> it's Well, okay, so here's the thing. I In movies, I'm always a fan of, how do I put it, uh, Occam's Razor. Like, whatever, like, brings the most plot lines together and connects them in the most meaningful way, that is what you should do. I know it's not always that way, but generally I tend to, I tend in that direction. So what I'm saying is, if you're going to have a random guy, like, showing up to save her every time something bad happens to her, either that should be Christian to give them, like, a reason for, like, actually coming together, or he should just not be there. <laughs> like, you know, like it doesn't make sense to have this a random, I don't know, whoever he is, like a drag we queen or something. We need our deus ex 
But it doesn't make sense for that to be a random character with no lines my, for such a significant role. My no prize explanation is uh, he's he's some type of uh, stagehand or security for the no, Moulin I'm, Rouge. No, I'm sure he... And uh, well, he, but, uh, Zidler probably has him watching Satine. Well, but he's, like, wearing makeup and, like, shiny outfits. Did you notice that? Like, whenever he shows up. So he's not dressed like a bouncer or, like, a security guard. He's he's dressed like a performer. Oh, and, and he... I'm realizing now he in the final show he he is dressed like a Hindu god or whatever like he's oh, wearing that's all right. that so that's he right. is one of the performers huh. so it's like he's just her gay best friend that like is somehow shows up to save her more than her love interest like I, I don't it's it doesn't work for me because I'm like this is a really significant thing that this character is doing because no one else is looking out for her in this way so like if this character keeps showing up there's no reason for him to be a a lineless side character. Mm-hmm. Um, however, <laughs> if I'm going to devil's advocate myself, <laughs> which I do frequently, <laughs> um, I, I guess I would make the argument that, um, a lot of Baz Luhrmann's movies, uh, Moulin Rouge in particular, kind of give that sense of the, the collective nature of, of stage performance, and the side characters are given a lot of screen time, even if they aren't given a lot of lines. Like, there's constantly that sense of, like, observation mm-hmm. and collaborativeness. And maybe this is kind of just, like, an offshoot of that. Like, well, these people all have to look out for each other. So this is just an example of that. I don't know. Like I said, it doesn't really work for me. And there are other examples of things that don't work for me that I will get into in a little bit. But, um, <laughs> but, but yes, I... I don't know, just a confusing choice to me. If it were me, like I would either just cut that that character or or just meld it with Christian's part. But that's just me. Yeah, it could have been fixed if they literally had him say. Anything. Yeah, like just, or, or yeah, or just, like, just I heard a commotion a down the hall. <laughs> I know. Well, that's like when he shows up, like when she's having supper, quote unquote, with the Duke. Like, how did he even know to go there? Like, I. He just shows up and knocks the Duke out, which, like, good for my mans, but, like, how did he know to do that? Like, that was part of the plan, was that she would go there. He probably thought, well, no one else is going to do it. You know, <laughs> but, but that's the thing, like, for all anyone at the Moulin Rouge knew, she wanted to go there because that was the whole plan, was that she was going to go there to save them, which is literally said in the text. Like, she's like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to sleep with the Duke, and that's just going to be the end of it. Like... That, as far as they knew, she was consenting to it, more or less. So the fact that she, that things go wrong, no one was supposed to know that. That's, that's what's confusing about it to me. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I love Buzz Lerman, but why did you do this? <laughs> I would do it differently, personally. I don't know. Um, it, let's, let's go back to things we like before we get into other things we don't like. See, I can I can criticize this movie uh, unabashedly because I love it unabashedly, <laughs> um, and and which makes me even more frustrated when there are things that don't work. But most of it does work, so let's talk about some of that. Um, I love the cast of characters. I love all of yes. the Bohemians. Mm-hmm. Um, John Leguizamo as Toulouse Lautrec. I don't know why they gave him the mewage uh, vocal affect, but they really did. Um, I That's love great. the narcoleptic Argentinian. 
Um, the first scene where he meets all of them, like the people who are putting on the play, is so fun. Uh, and they're like, who will we get to read the part of the, the sensitive young uh, Swiss goat herd? And then it's just like cut to Christian's face looking all like cute and innocent. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, hey, this guy. <laughs> it, it, it's just such a fun scene. But they're all like saying different versions of the hills are alive with the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> like the mountains resound it's with the chorus of totally ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. Yes, that one's a lot of fun. And it, it, like, yeah, like we were talking about before, so much of it kind of captures the energy of of creative art, um, of kind of like. collaborative art i should say Mm -hmm. of creating something with other people Mm -hmm. and none of it really comes together until christian shows up right they're they're clearly very they have they like to make stuff but they're not exactly good at it because they're like (laughs) oh god we gotta how are we gonna convince them to let us put this on because they clearly have a past with him Mm -hmm. and he's clearly the oh god what's the line like another one of toulouse's another one of Toulouse's tragically impoverished like writers or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately I am oh um, no <laughs> and but none of it We've works there, until you know he shows up he helps them make the song that I guess they cut because it had this, the musical ends up being about something completely different. Yeah, it doesn't end up being a, about a Swedish goat, a Swiss goat herd. They're able to improvise the entire plot of the play in like a minute. And none of it comes together until Christian is there because he's the one with the words. Mm-hmm. He, he's their, their idealistic... Uh, it's like, what's the male version of an ingenue? That's what he is. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it, which is which is kind of fun. I mean, that's how a lot of artistic productions feel. It's like everything doesn't really come together until you get mm. that one person who can really embody the part. Speaking of everything coming together, there's only one original song in the score. Um, this is very much a jukebox musical um, where, you know, the first scene in the Moulin Rouge is a mashup oh my gosh. of... Uh, Smells like Teen songs. Spirit, yeah. Lady Marmalade, and um, Diamonds, Diamonds are, are a Girl's, girl's best, friend. best Friend, which, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, we get the Tango Roxanne, which is fantastic. Oh, oh so, love um, it. One of my favorites. But then the final song, like the big grand love song, the the huge finale number, is the only original... Lover's secret song. <laughs> uh, Come What May is the only original number in the movie. And it is... A banger. It is a banger. <laughs> and it's very good it is. Because um, mm. as someone else also pointed out, um, if this song was not a banger, I... Uh, how, do you, how do you have this whole movie with all these great lively uh-huh. jukebox numbers and then the only original song is just kind of you but know I, that is not the that's case. not the case <laughs> and it could have been and it's also interesting because like the fact that it's the only original song it's the 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 special song that's written specifically for the play so it's like yeah the song within the movie is the play within a play song. <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So many the, framing devices, I can't see the painting. <laughs> oh my god. It makes it feel more true as something that they came up with specifically for the play because it was come up with specifically for the movie. Right, because the moment where they're trying to create the the. 
the hills are alive with the sound of music <laughs> like decades before it was actually created in real life as opposed to it, it's really weird because all of the other numbers they just start singing mm-hmm. they, they, there's yeah. no having a fake creation moment for this song that already exists is weird mm-hmm. so having them actually write the original song for the show yes. works a lot better because otherwise the entire time i'll just be thinking like Oh, really? Wow, you guys just happened to write this entire, like, Elton John song? Like, wow, what a coincidence. Oh, yeah. No, no, but it, yes, and and it's also one of the, like, more, like, it's played very straight, um, so it's when the, you know, it becomes very sincere in that moment, it's like, oh, this is, this is just, like, a straightforward love song, um, you know, it's not an adaptation or a parody of anything else, um, and uh yeah i really like it it's a fucking banger (laughs) 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 um oh gosh yeah the music the is all over the place but but i really like a lot of the adaptations um in particular (laughs) the tango de roxanne is so different (laughs) from the original roxanne song by the police right yes it it sounds almost nothing alike but it works really it well. Re- oh, it slaps. It's great. Just the intensity. <laughs> it truly captures the spirit of the tango. Right. And to really get anything out of the music in a jukebox, in, in, it benefits the movie that the adaptations or the covers of the songs are frequently so very different yeah like the tango de roxanne or like a virgin yes because if they were just singing the songs then you've got what you're just watching rock of ages like yeah (laughs) yeah that's true they they are trans they feel transformative yes that's a good word for Um, it yes yeah like they are they're transformative and therefore um uh what's the word justin uh (laughs) copyright uh oh uh We represent better legally For something to be... Oh, I can't remember the word. It's not public domain. It doesn't matter. It has to be transformative. You know? Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I know what you're saying. Fair use. Thank you. That's mm, okay. the word. Yeah. Um, I had to do the Futurama bit to remember my legalese. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, yes. It, I mean, not that they had to be because they probably paid for the rights to all the music anyway. I mean, probably because um, they're using the exact same words. But I mean... Y- it feels like they are using them in a transformative context, a context that makes sense for the story and like makes a song work for the story. Um, which is, yeah, which is something I really appreciate and think works really well. Um, because like, yeah, take like Roxanne, it, it, (laughs) when you're just listening to the song, you're like, um, okay, well I guess he's in love with a hooker. I mean, and he's like, you don't have to wear that dress tonight. (laughs) I can fix her. Yeah, yeah, I can fix her. Yeah. Which, (laughs) and in the movie that's made pretty explicit. (laughs) Well, like the Argentinian literally like yells in his face, jealousy will drive you. Stephanie. Louis Armstrong, thank you. Stephanie, would you care to tell us what you think doesn't work particularly well? Ah, uh, here we go. Okay, well, so I don't think the ending works very well. By which I mean, I think it works well in the moment. Like, I, I, I think it's well shot, well acted, well presented. Story-wise, like, thematically, I don't don't 
think it works very well. It's it's it gets you emotionally. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you have to think about it. Because if you're just watching it and going along with what the movie is telling you and what it's saying, you're just you're and you're just in the moment, it'll gut punch you. Yeah. yeah. But the moment you start to think about it, that's the thing for me. I. So I don't mind a tragic ending. Like it's pretty well established at this point that I I I personally love a romantic tragedy. Um, like for instance, with with Romeo and Juliet, I I love that. No notes, you know, <laughs> perfect as it is. Um. So I don't necessarily have a problem with the fact that it ends tragically. However, the tragic ending to me doesn't feel, I don't know how to put it. You know, a lot of times in a tragedy, there's this sense of inevitability almost, or a sense, let me rephrase that, a sense that, a sense of causality, which I feel is tragically (laughs) absent (laughs) from this movie. Right. Because, so like in Romeo and Juliet, the whole reason that they have to hide and do all of the duplicity and running around is because of their family's feud. Right. It yeah. all comes back to that central theme. And in Moulin Rouge, the uh, antagonistic force of the movie is the Duke. And has literally and no then, bearing. And on... then, yes. And so Satine's death is completely and entirely unrelated to the Duke, because the only thing keeping uh, Satine and Christian apart is the Duke. And then in the end, the thing that keeps them apart is not the Duke. It's tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. And I think you can make an argument that maybe part of what's being said here is that, you know, like, the bohemian life is unsustainable. People can't exist in this perfect free state. Uh, in the real world, but I don't feel that that's really explored no. to that extent it's in like, the movie. What is this trying to say? That like it's just so it's it. It's yes, like like, right. like they're they uh, these two just could never be together and be happy no matter what. Sucks. Like that's even kind if of they what were able. It's being said in cabaret, and it almost makes more sense there. But, and there no is there is that. no other antagonistic force. I mean, directly to them. Yeah. Right. It's not really the Nazis that keeps them. Well, it's apart. just their I fundamental mean, differences is, but, that people as people. Right. But in this one, that doesn't feel as much. It's like even if they were to overcome the Duke, sucks. She's gonna die anyway. Yeah. Right. And and that's what I don't really get. Like I'm not really sure what the point of that is. If that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And the only time those two plot lines even like kiss. Are that's why she doesn't run off with Christian because there's like you're dying you're gonna like yes. run away have him hunted down ruin yeah. his life you're, gonna, you're gonna, die gonna die and he's gonna get murdered yeah. so. And so that's the only two times that the plot like those two uh, forces yeah. intersected but that's not enough <laughs> that's my problem with the ending is it makes all the other forces of antagonism feel unimportant and that's not something you want for your stakes in a in this kind of dramatic story like you watching it like in hindsight knowing what happens it almost makes the things that keep them apart seem kind of unimportant and you don't want that for this kind of story you want the things that keep them apart to seem devastatingly important Mm -hmm, and insurmountable it's it's such an odd tragedy it's and so especially it makes... since Christian doesn't even know that she's sick. Right. Like... It, well, she tries to tell him and he doesn't believe her. Um, oh, right. She literally <laughs> says, I'm dying. Um, it's like, he's whatever, like, no, no, anyway. It's fine. Like, yeah, uh, it's fine. So it, I'm it, good. I'll fix it. 
I'm following a thought train here. So it makes me think of The Great Gatsby in the way that it's a tragic ending for a lot of people. But not everyone. Because the rich people still get off scot-free, yeah. right? Nothing of consequence yeah. happens to them. But in this, nobody wins. The rich guy loses. Yeah. The the main character, the two lovers lose. The Moulin Rouge is shut down and all of those people are now unemployed. Um, the Moulin Rouge shuts down because the Duke forced Zidler to sign over the deed to the Moulin Rouge in order to put on the show. Um, so, like... Not a single person in this walks away any better. Every mm. every single person involved is worse, worse for wear, and it's just such a depressing. It it yeah. Like I know the tragedy of it is deeply woven into this story, and it's it's a large part of it. But the rest of the movie is just so you know, the, the joie de vivre, mm-hmm. you know, that having this be the ending is just weirdly fatalistic. It's about unsustainability, I think. It, you know, I and I guess that's how you could defend it. You could say that Satine dying is like the bohemian dream dying. Like, that uh, she represents, you know, the triumph of love over the, the need for money and the need for capitalistic gain because... She is kind of forced into that at first where she's like, well, I have to do it because otherwise we'll lose everything. But in the end, she's like, fuck it, whatever, I'll be on the street as long as I'm with the person I love. But it still doesn't end up mattering. Like, like <laughs> death comes for us all, you know? So it, I think that to be charitable, I think that it is about the the unsustainability of the bohemian dream and about the inability of this lifestyle to thrive under the circumstances of, you know, what have you, capitalism or whatever. Um, But I don't think that that theme is well enough woven in to justify what happens. It, it, it just feels very like, I don't know. It just feels like, and then sad thing. Like I, you know, like, uh, it's like what Christian is the finishes point? his novel right yeah I mean, good, good for my mans. right I, to me like i would i would change that i mean personally like if we were going to put so much emphasis on the drama with the duke i would have her get killed by like taking a bullet that was meant for him or something like that something that would make it seem like their choices led them here. Right, like, there's literally a gunman on stage right. trying to murder Christian for the Duke. Yeah. He should have, like, the gun goes off and there's pandemonium in the theater. He should have, he could have accidentally shot Christine. You know, the the Duke's Satine, actions... Yes. Satine. That's, what, the, that's their ship name, is Christine. <laughs> the, the Duke tell, trying to have his man murder Christian so that he can be with Satine... And then him ending up murder or killing Satine because of the Duke's Right, that actions, would make sense. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And it would make sense for her, too, if she made the conscious decision to, like, sacrifice her life for him or, or something like that. Like, it would, it would really drive home that she is choosing one thing over another, um, which is what she's already kind of doing, but it doesn't end up mattering once again. Like, uh, yeah. 
it's just, it, it is is especially dark because it's like oh if she had just decided to like put Christian off and stay with the Duke for like twenty four hours longer then maybe the Moulin Rouge would have been saved but because she was like no I'm gonna give it all up for love like right before she dies then it ends up dooming everything and no one even gets to enjoy the benefits like. <laughs> This is fucking oh, dark, Oh, that's true. Man. The timing of it all is yeah. also really like, dark. Like, if she had died, like you said, 24 hours later, right. like, like, if she, like, if she had just gone with the Duke, held up that for a day, and then, you know, everyone would have been sad, but at least the Moulin Rouge is still around. Yeah, and it's just I mean, like... But that's uh, still not much of a... It's a cold win. comfort, yes, but I... I don't know. My point being that I don't have a problem with it having a sad ending. I just feel like the sad ending is kind of incongruous with the other stuff that happens. And that's like my big sticking point for the movie uh, that I will never completely understand. But it's fine. I love it anyway. And it's still one of my favorites. Good for Zidler, though, uh, realizing, well... I've lost everything anyway. I'm going to bop this dude in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, great satisfying moment. Yeah, and, and that's also, it's a nice ending scene. <laughs> Almost ending scene. Because it's like everyone kind of comes together and is like, yeah, you know what, fuck this guy. Like, yeah. we're all going to stick up for our own. Like The song literally changes to them start singing about how they're like you not going to. You won't fool the children of the revolution. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, once again. Beautiful triumphant musical number where everyone works together and then oh just kidding you still die at the end. <laughs> Look at it. It's just. <laughs> but we can't forget there is a thesis statement. The movie does have a thesis statement. What would that be? The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. <sighs> I love it. I love and it. And that holds true. The story is true to that. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. It's just then immediately ripped away from Christian. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say the best thing that will ever happen to you. It just says the greatest thing you'll ever learn. <laughs> um, and the movie opens and almost closes with that. Because the movie opens with, I think it's Toulouse singing Nature Boy, right? Yes. Um, and I love how just sad it sounds. Like, mm-hmm. deeply, it's a very devastatingly good sad. Song, a version of it. <laughs> and then at the very end, you know, when he falls from the ceiling, he's the sitar that can only tell the truth. And the he screams it at the top of his lungs. <laughs> it's just to love and be loved and return. <laughs> <laughs> he can only speak the truth. He's the magical sitar that can only speak the truth. And, you know, the... Which, I mean, I would argue Christian also kind of takes on that role. Like, sometimes unintentionally. When when he's like, um, why wouldn't the courtesan choose the Maharaja? And he's like, because she doesn't love you. And then everyone's like... Him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, in a way, spiritually, he is also the the magical sitar that can only speak the like, truth. Man, we've been keeping our mouth shut for weeks, and then he just goes and <laughs> yeah, tips just, the bean himself. <laughs> right, and it's so obvious, but of course the Duke doesn't understand metaphors, so, you know, <laughs> that's his problem. <laughs> but, but yes. Um, Would we like to gosh. move on to the comparison segment? Ooh. Which... I'm just going to go ahead and say, I don't know how much comparison these movies have in the stories that they're telling. Yeah. 
it's aesthetic. they do a little bit and we have discussed it you know the similarities that they do yeah, share about the bohemian yeah, the, thematically they, they yeah, do share yeah, some yeah. of the bohemian lifestyle and the unsustainability of it and the reality of the world but they do have a ton of aesthetic similarities yes. um yeah, one of our main characters that. is the lead singer in a nightclub whose dream is to make enough money to get away from to the nightclub and become an actress, actress. Yeah. yeah um and then the the naive young Englishman arrives and then falls into the lifestyle mm-hmm. and falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's representative of falling in love with that lifestyle, mm-hmm. like uh, as embodied by this particular woman. Um, and of course, when the woman either leaves you or dies, then you know that's like, oh, you can't actually live this way i guess apparently (laughs) like um which i mean going back to cabaret the um the abortion that happens i was thinking about that and i was like what does that mean and i was like well okay obviously the baby that they would have potentially had represents kind of the marriage of those two things of like being able to create a lifestyle that merges right. that marries and, those two parts. And Sally says the reason that she explains why she did it, and her reasoning is that you know can, they had been discussing like getting a a, a cottage on the seaside mm-hmm. or whatever back in England, and Sally's like, "Come on, that wouldn't work. No, we both know it do wouldn't." That. Yeah, no. and so because her decision, they want fundamentally different things, right? And so her decision to do that is her is the result of her realization that they just can't work out regardless of how they feel about each other the reality is it's just an unsustainable relationship right and and, and it's it's a mutual parting yes which is it's nice it's, yeah. a, it's a little it's cathartic nice. when yeah. th- that happens. I love when adults in movies act like adults. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of surprising for, for those characters. But for just, Sally. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of mutually like, yeah, this probably isn't going to work out. Well, see you sometime. Like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> see, see you, bud. Shake your yeah. <laughs> Like, it does feel a little anticlimactic. But, but in some ways, it, it feels real in a pleasant kind of way. Um, but, of course... In some ways, it's also just as tragic as what happens in Moulin Rouge because it's just about the, the, yeah, the the unsustainability, the inability of of certain beautiful things to live under, <laughs> under the kind of world that that we have, um, which is as close to a thematic through line as we can find, I think, in both of these. Um, and it's a little sad because you can tell that they're both made by people who very who very fervently love and believe in this kind of thing, um, in in creation and freedom and and fr- freedom of expression, freedom of love, those kind of things. And yet, kind of that acknowledgement that <laughs> that the world isn't kind to that and isn't kind to people who who want that. Um, so. <laughs> In a way, they're both kind of admissions of defeat, which is a little sad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, we, we continue to uh, believe we in the dream. S- we soldier on. We continue to believe in freedom, beauty, truth, and love. <laughs> but, <laughs> much, much like these movies, we're ending on a downer. <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit of a down note here. But uh, but but the dream soldiers on, you know, like you said, like that. I think I think that's present for sure. It's like those things can't be completely killed because they are 
innate in who we are as people. Like, no matter what happens, we always want to believe in those things. We want to create. We want to love. We want to express our individuality. And we want to attain freedom. Like, those things can never go away. But, (laughs) you know, they are destined to be... (laughs) to be defeated again and again but but they but they will always come back and they will always find a place to express themselves be resilient (laughs) (laughs) y'all yeah exactly the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to i don't know make art in berlin or paris to get knocked down yeah and then get back up again (laughs) they're never never gonna gonna keep keep you down down. (laughs) 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 oh my god yeah, so, so yeah. I think I guess that's good. That's, that's it. Good lesson. Good. good lesson. Great. <laughs> All right, so go listen to the soundtracks. Um, make an art today. Stick it to the man. Jumbawamba. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Caleb. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at actual underscore Caleb. My name's Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Steph has no name and on Letterboxd at Ray's Left Boob. We've really got to switch the order in which we do this because I start my uh, <laughs> my tags <laughs> laughing every single time. <laughs> my name's Justin. You can find me on most social media at Blame It On Butler. You can find this show on Twitter at Sounds Bill Millier. All right, peace, y'all. Freedom, beauty, truth, and love. Good night, everybody, and we love you. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to check the episode description for any links we may have included related to this week's episode. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to tune in every Thursday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.